Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor in Crawley in England at Maidenbower Baptist Church, and it's my privilege to be walking with you through the sermons of this eminent servant of God, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, born on the 19th of June, 1834, and died on the 31st of January, 1892. He was a particular Baptist. He was a a preacher of Christ Jesus. And we're seeking to learn about Christ and to learn how to preach Christ by working through these sermons from Charles Spurgeon. If you want to follow with us, you can do so on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can sign up for a weekly newsletter. Each week we read through a selection of sermons, one per day, and this week it's 528 through to 534. Next week it will be, God willing, 535 to 541. Each week we zero in on a featured sermon. We try to select some representative sermon from that week's preaching so that we can learn more about the the topic at hand or how it's being handled. And this week we're looking at Sermon 531, which is entitled The Warrant of Faith. It was preached on the 20th of September, a Sunday morning, 1863, by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. His text on this occasion, 1 John 3.23, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. He begins quite abruptly. The old law shines in terrible glory with its Ten Commandments. There are some who love that law so much that they cannot pass over a Sabbath without its being read in their hearing, accompanied by the mournful petition, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. He says some people even enter into this as a covenant for their children that they would keep these commandments. In some of the older buildings, especially in the UK, you will find the Ten Commandments perhaps written on a board or inscribed on a wall. And Spurgeon says, Over the tables of the law in every church, I would have conspicuously printed these gospel words, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh living be justified. So this quite abrupt opening, as we've said, is designed to establish that by the works of the law, you cannot get right with God. And he says there's a danger in imagining that you might be able to do so. Your soul will be lost if you try and get right and stay right with God by what you have done or will do. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that a man obtains peace with God. And so the commandment of God, 1 John 3.23, is this, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon asks then, what will a Christian want to know when it comes to this one command of the gospel? What ought we to believe? What's the matter of the believing here intended? Then, what is the sinner's warrant for so believing in Christ? And then, what then is the mandate of the gospel? So what do you have to believe to be a Christian? What is the sinner's warrant for so believing? On what basis can you come to Christ? What's your authority for doing so? And then what is the mandate of the gospel? So it's an unusually brief introduction and it gets right to the heart of the question. 
And Spurgeon is going to work through each of these things and perhaps ironically, given what we'll see as we come through the sermon, he's not going to have much time for the last of those three headings, the mandate of the gospel. Now, it's also worth our stepping back just a touch here before we launch into the substance of this sermon to ask, why is Spurgeon preaching in this way? And why does he use this language of the warrant of faith? Well, some of you may know the historian Ian H. Murray, and you might have heard of a book called Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism, The Battle for Gospel Preaching. Now, Spurgeon is dealing with those kinds of issues in this sermon. He is dealing with uh, a group of uh, Christians who would have demanded what they call a warrant for faith, that there needs to be some sense in you, some feeling in you, some experience in you that warrants you, that gives you the right, as it were, to come to Jesus Christ believing. And having that in the back of our minds is going to help us as we work our way through this sermon, because Spurgeon's emphasis will be that the command of God is that we should believe, and that that is the warrant for any sinner to come to Jesus Christ. So perhaps having that in our minds will be of assistance to us as we look then at what he says on the matter of believing. What is it that a man is to believe in order to obtain eternal life? Is it, he asks, the Athanasian creed? Is it true that if a man does not hold that confession whole and entire, he shall without doubt perish everlastingly? He says we're going to leave those to decide who are learned in the matters of bigotry. Is it any particular form of doctrine? Is it the Calvinistic or the Arminian scheme? Now again, we know that Spurgeon is not an anti-doctrinal preacher, and we know that he actually believes that certain things matter very much and that everything God has revealed matters in its proper degree. He is, out and out, a true evangelical Calvinist. So we know he's not saying none of this is significant, but what he's trying to drive at here is the the core of, of these things, believing on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He says that's where we need to be content. That faith which saves the soul is believing on a person, depending on Jesus for eternal life. So he's cutting to the heart. He doesn't want to be distracted by other matters, however important they may be in their proper place. He's concerned that the sinner close with Jesus Christ in faith. And so he begins to unpack what this means, that everything that needs to be believed in order to be declared righteous in the sight of God, that is justification by faith, they all relate to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that incidentally is why the person and work of Christ is so often, so consistently assaulted by Satan. Because if he can uh, get, give us the wrong ideas or distract us or divert us from Christ, if he can give us alternatives to the Lord Jesus, then we cannot be saved. So we must believe him to be God's son. We must believe him to be true God. We must also believe him to be the saviour, the man who came into the world, the God who took to himself our humanity. We must believe that Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners really did accomplish his mission, 
that he's able to make atonement for sin, that the blood which was shed was actually his redemption for us, and that therefore all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be given, forgiven unto men, since the blood of Jesus Christ, God's dear Son, cleanses us from all sin. We must heartily accept the great doctrine of the atonement, Christ standing in the room, place and stead of sinful men, bearing for them the terror of the law's curse until justice was satisfied and could demand no more. And we should rejoice too that Christ in his dying put away forever the sin of his people and by his living has provided us with a perfect righteousness so that we can be accepted in the Beloved and that we must trust our soul to Christ. When we do so, our sins through his blood are forgiven and his righteousness is imputed to us. And it's not enough to know that that's the case. We need to actually act upon it to truly trust our souls in the Redeemer's hands. Faith, he says, must act in this way. I believe that Jesus came to save sinners and therefore, sinner though I be, I rest myself on him. I know that his righteousness justifies the ungodly. I therefore, though ungodly, trust in him to be my righteousness. I know that his precious blood in heaven prevails with God on the behalf of them that come unto him. And since I come unto him, I know by faith that I have an interest in his perpetual intercession. Now, isn't it interesting that having said, uh, in effect, It's not some detailed creed. It's not some doctrinal scheme that Spurgeon could unpack such a simple phrase as believing on his son, Jesus Christ, with so much substance, so much specificity, so much clarity. To say that the gospel is in essence simple is not to deny that it is sweet, rich and profound. And he says, this is just the one thought then of believing on God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's this simple act of trust, accepting God's great promise contained in the person of his Son. It is taking God at his word and trusting in Jesus Christ as being my salvation, although I am utterly unworthy of his regard. And already he starts to press this home. Sinner, if you take Christ to be your saviour this day, you are justified. That is, God will declare you righteous in his sight. Whatever blasphemer or persecutor you may be, if you dare to trust the saviour, then that faith will save you. So here's Spurgeon's initial plea. This is what it means to believe on God's son, Jesus Christ. But there's a question that must then follow on from that. And this is where he wants to spend the bulk of his energies. What is the warrant of believing? On what basis can a sinner come to put that kind of trust in this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And he goes back to his text. According to the scriptures, the warrant for a man to believe is the commandment of God. This is the commandment that you believe on his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is where Spurgeon is uh, standing now against the hyper-Calvinism that would call that kind of statement duty faith. Because if God commands you to believe, then you have a duty to obey. And this idea then that man should 
obey God in this matter. Man should put his faith in Jesus Christ. This is where Spurgeon is now going to uh, make his points. Now, he begins to unpack then this matter of the warrant for our faith. Self-righteousness, he says, will find a refuge for itself in the warrant of our faith in Christ. We we need to be aware of, of the danger of these things. He says, self-righteousness will reason in this way. You are not saved by what you do, but by what Christ did. But then you have no right to trust in Christ unless there's something good in you which shall entitle you to trust in him. So he says, I need a reason why I can trust in Christ. And there must be something then that I do, that I contribute, that that I bring forth in order to warrant me believing. And he says that's legal reasoning, that is self-righteousness. And I confess with grief that that when I was first wrestling with, with these matters, when I was, before I was converted and trying to work out on what basis then I could come to God, this was the kind of thinking that that bubbled up naturally out of my heart. What do I have to do? What must be in me for God to accept a sinner such as I am? Now, what's interesting is that Spurgeon then tells us that some preachers in the Puritanic times whose shoe latchets I am not worthy to unloose, shoe laces I am not worthy to undo, erred much in this matter. I refer not merely to Alain and Baxter, that's Joseph Alain and Richard Baxter, who he describes as far better preachers of the law than of the gospel. Now, if you recall, if you've been listening, not long ago we we heard him say how much he appreciated Alain and Baxter because of their forthrightness when it came to dealing with sin and with judgment. But he says there's also a danger here that these men can be better preachers of the law than the gospel. And he mentions others as well, John Rogers of Dedham, Thomas Shepard, the author of The Sound Believer, and especially the American Thomas Hooker, who has written a whole book upon qualifications for coming to Christ. And I think it was, uh, it may have been Shepard of whom it was said, uh, somebody who was very distressed after reading uh, Thomas Shepard's descriptions of what was necessary in order to come to Jesus Christ, said, oh, I I should be fair to Shepard, a description of uh, the the similarities that there can be between those who give the appearance that they are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are truly waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody cried out, oh, to be one of Shepard's hypocrites. And what they meant was, you know, if if I only had the marks of someone who he describes as a hypocrite, I would be happy indeed. So Spurgeon's point here, and now he's picking up the language of hyper-Calvinism, these excellent men had a fear of preaching the gospel to anyone except those whom they styled sensible sinners. Now that doesn't mean someone with common sense. It means someone who knows and feels themselves to be a sinner in need of a saviour. And that Uh, language is the typical language of hyper-Calvinism. You can only offer the gospel to a sensible sinner, one who has this developed awareness of their need. And consequently, he says, such preaching keeps hundreds of hearers sitting in darkness when they might have rejoiced in the light. 
they preached repentance and the hatred of sin as the warrant for a sinner's trusting to Christ. And so the reasoning goes in this way. I have such and such a degree of sensibility or awareness or feeling on account of sin. Therefore, I have a right to trust in Christ. And so the warrant becomes our experience, our feeling, our repenting, our hatred of sin. Something has happened to us first. Others, says Spurgeon, say that the warrant for a sinner to believe in Christ is his election. Spurgeon says you can't know your election until you've believed. If I cannot possibly know my election before I believe, and yet the minister tells me I may only believe upon the ground of my election, how am I ever to believe at all? Election brings me to faith. Faith is the evidence of my election. But to say that my faith is to depend upon my knowledge of my election, which I cannot get without faith, is, says Spurgeon, to talk egregious nonsense. And so he now needs to rush on, and so do we, because he's now going to then deal with this negatively and positively, that the warrant for a sinner to believe in Jesus is found in the gospel itself and in the command which accompanies that gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That is the sole and only warrant that you have or need to come to Jesus Christ with faith in order that you may be saved. And he says negatively, any other way of preaching the gospel warrant is absurd. If you are to preach Christ to those who have no goodness, who have nothing in them that qualifies them for mercy, then you have a gospel so divine that you can proclaim it with your last breath, crying aloud that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners as sinners, not as penitent sinners, not as awakened sinners, but sinners as sinners, sinners of whom I am the chief. And if you can only hold that out to those who repent of their sins, if you can only hold that out to those who've already undergone some kind of experience, if you can only effectively give the medicine to someone who's already half well, then you're preaching Christ not to the sinners, but to those who are, at least in some measure, righteous. All good desires have some degree of holiness in them. So if there's any degree of holiness in you, it must be the work of the Spirit. And so Spurgeon says, you're going to get tangled up. If you're looking for some warrant other than God's command, then you'll end up preaching absurdities. Furthermore, says Spurgeon, it is legal. I dare to say it, legal. Although this method is generally adopted by the higher school of Calvinists, the hyper-Calvinists, they are herein unsound, un-Calvinistic and legal. This is not preaching real grace. Because if you believe in Jesus Christ because you feel a genuine repentance of sin and therefore you think you have a warrant for your faith, you, you, your first ground of confidence is that you have in fact repented of your sin. It's not that Christ will receive you. It's not his excellency. It's not his sufficiency. It's not his, uh, the, the fullness and the beauty and the sweetness of his finished work. If I lean on Christ, he says, because I feel this and that, then I'm leaning on my feelings and not on Christ alone. And that is legal. Then he says it's a boasting way of faith. 
If my warrant to trust in Jesus be found in my experience, my loathings of sin or my longings after Christ, then all these good things of mine are a legitimate ground of boasting, because although Christ may save me, yet these were the wedding dress which fitted me to come to Christ. So if you first of all point back to yourself and say, this is what I brought to the table. This is what I offered. This is the basis in which I can come to Jesus Christ. Then you've got something of which to boast. And so whether I rely on my experience or my good works makes little difference for either of these reliances will lead to boasting since they are both legal. Law and boasting are twin brothers, he says, but free grace and gratitude always go together. Then he says any other warrant for believing on Jesus is a changeable warrant, because if it relies on anything in me, then I change more frequently than ever does an English sky. If my warrant to Christ, uh, to believe in Christ is based within, it's going to change hourly, and so I'm lost and saved alternately. I need an unfailing warrant to believe in Jesus, and I find it only in the precious truth of the divine commandment, not my variable experience. He goes on, any other warrant is utterly incomprehensible. If you tell a poor sinner that there's a certain amount of humblings and tremblings and convictions and heart searchings to be felt in order that he may be warranted to come to Christ, I demand of all legal gospelers distinct information as to the manner and exact degree of preparation required. How many tears do you need to weep? How guilty do you need to feel? What point have you reached when now you are warranted to come to Jesus Christ? Again, you see, it turns us all back in upon ourselves. What is there in me? Whereas the gospel holds out everything that there is in Christ. You must come to Christ as a sinner and rest on Jesus as he is. Everything else is confusing, changeable, incomprehensible. Or, he says, if you can explain it, it's going to take a day or two. And again, the preaching of alarms of conscience and repentance as qualifications for Christ, this sensible sinner, someone aware of their need to a certain degree, it is unacceptable to the awakened sinner. Now, at this point, he does something interesting. He, he introduces a, a writer by the name of John Saltmarsh, uh, who on some things is unsound. But Saltmarsh was, was considered a in his day, at least on some levels, a, a free grace preacher. And, and Spurgeon uh, uses then Saltmarsh's teachings on this point and in this way to illustrate his point. But his, the, the thrust of his argument here is, what do I need to do, asks the sinner? How am I going to, to do this? If I've if I felt this, if you felt that, can I now believe? I have no questions to ask you, he says. I'm not going to quiz you about how much you've prayed or how guilty you feel or how you've used the means of grace. I have no advice to give you except this. God's command to you is, whatever you may be, trust to the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And that's what the sinner needs. That's the only acceptable gospel in that sense, acceptable to God. It's the only gospel that makes sense to a sinner. Oh, my brothers, he says, 
I am ashamed of myself when I think of the way in which I have sometimes talked to awakened sinners. I am persuaded that the only true remedy for a broken heart is Jesus Christ's most precious blood. So his point is, I shouldn't offer anything else. I shouldn't demand anything else. I shouldn't counsel anything else. I should send the sinner to Jesus Christ as they are. And I was about to say, send the needy sinner. Well, every sinner is needy, but it's not feeling yourself needy that is your warrant to go to Jesus Christ. Your warrant to go to Jesus Christ is that God commands you to go. Any other warrant, he says, is false and dangerous. False, my brothers, false as God is true, that anything in a sinner can be his warrant for believing in Jesus, and dangerous because it may mislead the sinner. He says, though you have been professors of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for 20 years, if your reason for believing in Christ lies in this, that you've felt the terrors of the law, that you've been alarmed, you've been convinced, if your own experience is your warrant for believing in Christ, it's a false reason. And you're really relying not upon Jesus Christ, but upon the experience through which you have passed. And it is only Christ who saves. Take care of resting in your own experience. That's of nature's spinning, he says. The tendency of the preaching that puts the warrant for faith anywhere but in the gospel command vexes the true penitent and consoles the hypocrite. The tendency of it is to make the poor soul which really repents feel that he must not believe in Christ because he sees so much of his own hardness of heart. And so when you send someone who's truly grieving over their sin back to themselves to say, have you grieved enough? If they're really seeing sin for what it is, they will invariably answer, no. Now Spurgeon and we have to press on positively. And he says the negative part's been positive enough, so he's going to be brief. The gospel command is a sufficient warrant for a sinner to believe in Jesus Christ. The words of our text imply this. This is the commandment. What other warrant do I need? What further authority do I require than that God has commanded me, not just advised me, not just encouraged me, not just given me the opportunity, but has commanded me to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's reflected in the commission of the gospel preacher. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, not Preach the gospel to every regenerate person. Not preach the gospel to every convinced sinner. Not preach the gospel to every sensible or aware and uh, con convicted soul. No, it's every creature. And the warrant to believe, God commands it, is enough for every creature. It is a genuinely universal offer. Repentance is preached as a gift. Faith is held out as something that Christ himself, God himself, gives. It is not then in me. It cannot be, and I do not need it to be, because God commands. Then, my brothers, to preach Christ to sinners, as sinners must be right, for all the former acts of God are to sinners as sinners. Who did God elect? Sinners. Not sensible sinners, not convinced sinners, he set his love upon us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. How did he redeem them? Did he redeem them as saints? 
Did he re- redeem the regenerate? Did he redeem the, the self-aware? Did he re- redeem the convinced? No. While we were yet enemies, he reconciled us by the death of his son. Christ never shed his blood for the good that is in us, but for the sin that is in us. And then again, it's inconsistent with the character of God to suppose that he should come forth and proclaim, if, O my fallen creatures, if you qualify yourselves for my mercy, I will save you. If you will feel holy emotions, if you'll be conscious of sacred desires, then the blood of Jesus Christ shall cleanse you. That, he says, is not God-like mercy. But when God comes with pardons full and free, when he comes to the enemy, the rebellious subject, and still cries out, I have blotted out your sins like a cloud and like a thick cloud your iniquities. Why, this is divine. This is mercy on a God-like scale. This is, this is grace on a, on a divine, by a divine measure. It is like God to forgive in this way. Now Spurgeon recommends another book, and uh, I'd be glad to do this. I'd be wary with Saltmarsh, but Abraham Booth, Glad Tidings to Perishing Sinners. Friends, if you can get your hands on that, you'll do well. Spurgeon says, I've never heard anyone cast a suspicion upon Abraham Booth's soundness. On the contrary, he has been generally considered as one of the most orthodox of the divines of the last generation. If you want my views in full, read his book. Glad Tidings to Perishing Sinners. It's splendid. It's it's lovely. Um, and, and he mentions a couple of other people. William Huntingdon, uh, a man not easily blamed for not being high enough in doctrine, uh, and he uh, recommended a book by uh, that gentleman, John Saltmarsh. Uh, Spurgeon is, is saying, look, if, if William Huntingdon himself was commending Saltmarsh, then whether you're a Huntingdonian or a Abraham Booth, whether you're a Calvinist or a high Calvinist, you need to advocate not a legal, graceless system of qualifications and preparations, but you need to advocate free grace. And here he quotes another man who at some points would be a little more dangerous, Tobias Crisp, pat to the point and a high doctrine man too. I mention neither Booth nor Huntingdon as authorities upon the subject. To the law and to the testimony we must go. So I think perhaps Spurgeon is raising these different names that the Booths and the Crisps and the Saltmarshes and the Huntingdons in order to demonstrate that actually when it comes to it, it is the scriptures upon which we need to settle. And he adds that the blessings which flow from preaching Christ to sinners as sinners are such character as prove it to be right and this levels us all. I cannot come to God because I'm better than someone else. I do not need to come to God because I feel worse than someone else. I come to God because I am a sinner. And this forbids despair because it's not in me. It's not what I am or feel or do that gives me peace with God, but it keeps me close then to Jesus Christ. If I am to come to Christ as a preacher, as a sinner every day, and I must do so, for the word says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. If every day I am to come to Christ as a sinner, why then how paltry all my doings look. What utter contempt it casts upon all my fine virtues, my preachings, my prayings, and everything that comes from my flesh. And though it leads me to seek after purity and holiness, 
yet it teaches me to live on Christ and not on them, and so it keeps me at the fountainhead. What was his last point? It's the mandate. We're to go and tell people, believe. And it's ironic that in a sermon like this, Spurgeon doesn't get to the point of doing that because you can imagine him launching out at this point and making Christ known. He simply says this, God now commands you to believe in Jesus Christ. This is his commandment. He does not command you to feel anything or be anything to prepare yourself for this. Now, are you willing to incur the great guilt of making God a liar? Surely you will shrink from that. So dare to believe. It is so delightful a thing to accept a perfect salvation, to be saved by precious blood and to be married to so bright a saviour that I would dare to hope the Holy Spirit has led you to cry, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We're out of time, as I think Spurgeon felt himself to be in unpacking all of these things. But I hope that uh, this helps both in terms of a historical understanding of some of the issues that Spurgeon is dealing with, but more importantly, an experiential or experimental grasp ourselves of what is really at stake when it comes to how a man, a woman, a boy or a girl can come to Jesus Christ. My warrant for coming does not lie in me, in anything I am or do. It lies in this, that God commands me to come to his Son, Jesus Christ, in whom and in whom alone is everything needful that I should enjoy peace with him. May God grant us to understand these things and to find in Christ the, those unsearchable riches by which we obtain peace and joy now and forever. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us next week. As I've mentioned, uh, we'll be reading sermons 535 to 541 and our featured sermon is number 537, Encourage Your Minister. Until then, God bless you. My name is Jeremy Walker and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.